Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 76, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And this is a show where we drink coffee, uh, eat muffins and chat about old video games. Yeah, and these little nice... Mr. Kipling lemon cakes that uh, my girlfriend's brought into the studio. Now, uh, this week on the show, like we do every single week on the Retro Hour podcast, Ravi and I are going to go through the uh, headlines that have been making the top stories in the world of Retro this week, and there are some pretty cool new developments. And then also, in the second half of the show, we dedicate it to a very special guest. Now, next week, though, kind of looking ahead a little bit, we're trying something a little bit new. We're going to do a two-parter. Can what? you believe it? Yeah, this this interview is not just going to be a small 45-minute one. We're going to do a two-parter. And the reason we are is because it's probably the most famous video game ever made. So, you know, it's worth talking about for that long. Not necessarily for the right reasons. No, but today <laughs> we have, you were talking about brand new things. We have the creator of a brand new Mega Drive game. Can you believe it? Now, bearing in mind this is 2017, you know, the uh, the Mega Drive, what was its heyday, 25 years ago now? Yeah, around. We all remember walking into game shops when we were kids and, you know, just even the boxes on Mega, Mega Drive games still look impressive to me. If I walk into like a retro gaming shop and you see them all either hung up or just the boxes on the shelves, there is something, you know, those kind of black cases that they've got. Yeah, they were, they were a proper item, weren't they? Yeah, and big chunky, also because of the cartridges, you know. We had Amiga boxes, but they were all different shapes. They weren't nicely uniform like those were. Oh, yeah, computer game boxes were all cardboard and the tear and everything. Yeah. Whatever. Mega Drive games, you could throw them off a cliff and they'd be all right. Yeah, yeah. But wouldn't it be crazy to walk into a shop, like, say, in a couple of months' time, and see a brand-new Mega Drive game on the shelf? Absolutely nuts, and... We've got the guy who's making it, Matt Phillips. He's actually using original Sega dev kits as well. Now, you met Matt at a retro gaming event last year, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, it was Game City, which was an event I was doing some DJing in. And Matt was in the corner with this brand new Mega Drive game, and he had a little cart. And it wasn't, it wasn't even had a plastic surround, it was just a bare cart stuck into the Mega Drive, and he's playing this beautiful game. Now, I did have a little go at the game and uh, managed to kind of break it a little bit but you know we're not going to mention that to Matt when he comes in the studio obviously <laughs> but it's up and running again now and this game is called Tanglewood and you know what I think is crazy about this he started this as like you know a labour of love because he had a mega drive when he was a kid and he loved it but actually this has developed to the stage now where he's done a successful Kickstarter he's going to be getting proper cartridges made boxes and all that have been produced at the moment he's got a factory to make like 600 of these cartridges it's crazy and it's just amazing this is happening in 2017 yeah. So Matt Phillips, the guy behind Tanglewood, we're going to chat to him about the Sega scene in 2017 and obviously lots of memories as well, like we always do on this show. And he'll be coming up on the Retro Hour in the next half an hour. Now, before then, we want to say a massive, massive thank you to the people who keep the show going week in, week out. And these are people who've made donations into our little tip jar because, you know, that's, that's the way we think about this. We have it on the front page of our website. It is completely optional, but obviously, you know, it is nice if Ravi and I don't have to pay for doing the show completely ourselves. Or, or for the um, muffins. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't spent money on muffins, have we? No. <laughs> you go for a made them, surely. Homemade. Yeah, yeah, Tesco's. <laughs> Mrs. Mrs. Kipling. <laughs> but this week, I mean, we've had some amazing donations coming into the show, guys, and we appreciate every penny that we get. And making the Retro Hour Hall of Fame this week, we want to say a massive thank you and we apologise in advance if we mince any of these names. <laughs> we, we try our we best. We always do. <laughs> Paul Gadving. Ephraim Juntenen. James Alston. And Art of Tottenham. And Art of Tottenham. Well attempted, Ravi. Uh, <laughs> hopefully you know who you are. But listen, we do appreciate everything that we get, guys. And you can make a donation through our website, theretrohour.com. We have a PayPal link and also a Bitcoin link as well if you'd like to donate anonymously. Now, before we get into our uh, Sega special this week, we timed this quite well because at the time of recording this, there has been a rather mysterious new trailer that Sega have just dropped. Now, um, this is on IGN's YouTube channel. It literally came out about 50 minutes ago at the time of recording this. And it's called The Future of Sega Teaser Video. Now, this is really weird, isn't it? Because it doesn't really give away anything. I, I, I think it's just, like, concept rubbish. Like, you know, you get, like, a car advert and it's like the future is sleek the future is sick and it's saying nothing about the car that's that's what this was like the only thing that i got out of it was there was a few cool clips of shenmue yeah they had some eye tracking kind of stuff in that i don't know if that's someone else's hardware or which direction they're going and they had a new 
logo, wasn't it? A new slogan in the end. Yeah, well, it's kind of like, you know, this is, I mean, it's all in Japanese, this mm. trailer, so there are subtitles on it as well. I mean, you know, you wonder how much of it can maybe gets lost in translation as well. There's always that to consider. But again, I mean, it's, you know, Sega have kind of been on this, um, you know, kind of re- reinventing themselves mm. kind of tip recently. And also they've been at E3, I mean, they showed some of the uh, Sonic Forces gameplay on the uh, PS4 Pro as well, which, you know, we looked at it and, you know, you kind of said, oh, it's Sonic Adventure HD, which... Sped up. Yeah, <laughs> if it was, great, but it actually reminds me a bit more of like the Wii U games that, you know, came out recently. Yeah. But, I mean, it is kind of cool to see that Sega are kind of, you know, attending E3 and making a bit of an effort to do some publicity again. Well, they're saying in, in it, we're listening to the users and we're hearing what the users are saying and kind of using that as feedback. Hopefully, they have, and it's not just, uh, you know, hot air. But I'm looking through the comments on this uh, YouTube video. Um, interestingly, the top trending comment is hashtag make Sega great again. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone's getting carried away. It means they're coming back to the console business, they're going to be releasing a new Dreamcast Sega console. Too, Dreamcast 2, It's all that. There's thousands of comments, people saying, oh my God. But someone does make a good comment. If in 2017, Atari can make a new console, why can't Sega? Yeah, yeah. Time will tell. I mean, you know, again, it is just really... Sega talking about kind of how innovative they are without really showing anything in this trailer. But, you know, it's only just come out. Time will tell. Maybe something more interesting will come out in the future weeks. Yeah, or you could just get a new Mega Drive from Brazil, you know. Yeah. <laughs> which is that company, or Tech Toy? Tech Toy, yeah, yeah. They're, they're releasing a new console at the moment, which is going to be a new Mega Drive. Well, the Crazy. Sega scene is still huge in Brazil, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Isn't it like one of the main systems, the master system out there still? I, I hear it's hear it's really big. Well, we'll find out more about that in the next coming weeks, I'm sure. But, you know, anything that Sega do, I think, is going to get interest from, you know, anyone that's been a fan of video games for as long as we have. Just seeing something new from Sega always kind of gives you goosebumps and you're like, oh, look. Yeah, totally. Please let it be as good as Sonic 2. Now, speaking of uh, things from the past that are back, do you remember Wipeout? Oh, God, I love Wipeout, yeah. One of the most fantastic kind of breakthrough games. It was, you know, for the young culture, they had kind of the rave soundtrack on it, the cool lights, the speed in it. I remember it being in nightclubs. I used to go clubbing and there'd just be lines of wipeouts and you could just go and sit there and play the arcade machine and it would be free to play. Yeah. Yeah, they knew who they were targeting. Put your Mets or your Reef or your uh, your Hooch in Oh, God, stand. yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was awful. But obviously, you know, the first Wipeout game, it was kind of, you know, a bit of a game changer, really, because like you said, then it was like the first game I really remember that had proper, like, you know, you had the Prodigy doing music for it and stuff like that. And I remember... I think the concept of that game, the early version of it was in, remember Hackers, the movie? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. The scenes where they were like hacking, they'd be like going through yeah. kind of well, wipeout. Angelina Jolie was in an arcade in that game, uh-huh. in, in that movie. And she was playing like an early, very early beta of That's, wipeout. Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing it, but it was really like, Chunky, wasn't it? Or zoomed in. It was massive. It was on like a screen that must have been about like a hundred foot tall in front of her. Yeah, it was kind of all kind of like a virtual reality kind of thing. Obviously, when the game came out, it changed quite a lot when you played it with the control pad. But you know, all this time later, you know, over twenty years later, there is a new Wipeout collection um, that essentially is a remaster of the original game that is now available for the PlayStation Four. That's really good because I played twenty ninety seven. Twenty ninety seven was the follow on one, but then there was. Like, I think Wipeout X, and there was a few other titles that I've seen people play, and I've had a go on myself. To be honest, they were a bit bob. Like, 2097 was really good. The original Wipeout was nice, but these ones didn't have the the feel of it. But, you know, um, Paul Driscoll off RGDS actually drew my attention to this because he tweeted and he said, oh, new Wipeout game, check this out. But he said the PC version had a bit of a frame drop. Okay. Which is quite annoying, because this is meant to be a a remake that's, you know, in 4K, runs beautifully, 60 frames per second, all of that. So maybe it's Paul's PC. I don't (laughs) know, but uh, I hope they release a patch for that or something. Well, on the PlayStation 4, I mean, you know, you'd imagine with this being, you know, the original was a PS exclusive, wasn't it, at first? Mm. So, you know, that's probably his main platform, I'd imagine. Uh, But, you know, what's really good is, I mean, they're obviously kind of appealing to the the guys who played it originally, like we did back in the day. And the the, the trailer for it, the release of video, is so nostalgic looking. You know, there's loads of shots in there of the original game and the PlayStation 1. Have a little listen to the audio of this just for a minute. Wipeout resonated with players uh, initially because it was, you know, a very exciting time in the games industry with PlayStation's arrival and the move to, to proper 3D gaming. 
there was always a perception of, of gaming being for kids, but all of a sudden gaming become cool, and all of a sudden it wasn't just teenagers and young kids playing games, it was late teens, 20-somethings and 30-somethings. It influenced the culture back in the 90s, the club culture back in the 90s, and it was uh, very much of its time. Literally, it was like a phenomenon. Some of the advertising associated with it, with uh, Cox, with the, the blood coming out the nose, um, that was considered kind of insane, completely left field. The show, get that right there, because I remember seeing like Wipeout in shops and stuff the same time, like, you know, Ministry of Sound launched their magazine, and it was all those Dance Nation CDs. Prodigy the tunes shop. in there as well, you know. It was really cool. And that was Tim Wright as well, who did the sound on Wipeout. He did a couple of the original tracks, mm -hmm. but also like remix versions of the other stuff. And he also did the Lemming soundtracks. It's a yeah. cool old school gaming connection there. Well, Signosis, it? wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cold Storage. Yeah, Cold there, Storage. And he actually did a Wipeout remix album like last year, which was really good as well. So he must be involved with this. And, you know, there's going to be some good tunes on there hopefully we had him on one of our early shows actually didn't we so yeah yeah i'll, I'll show that in the show notes if you want to listen back to that again but with the original game i mean you know we, we talk about how you know influential it was and such a cool game at the time actually as a game playing it though all i ever did was bang it in the sides <laughs> on the original wipeout no no i got quite good at it actually i found they had the PSP version or the Vita version was a lot more hard. I think what you weren't doing, you weren't air braking, Dan. <laughs> the second That's... one I was fine at. The second one, still to this day, you can play it. But yeah, the, the first one I find really hard. Yeah, there was a like little weird technique that you had to get just to stop yourself from hitting in the sides. Okay, well, maybe... and it was just doing the thrust at the right time. Maybe they'll make it easier in the HD update. Yeah, we should have a wipeout tournament, don't oh, no. let, <laughs> let me have a bit of practice first. Yeah, <laughs> polish up your skills. Now, EverDrives are always interesting uh, devices. You know, these let you um, download games and play them on original hardware via uh, SD or micro SD cards. And finally, there is a new Game Boy and Game Boy Color EverDrive flash card on the way with safe state functionality. Yeah, and uh, this is kind of an updated version. It's basically the EverDrive Game Boy was replaced by the EverDrive Game Boy X series, which is, you know, the cooler, advanced version. You put an X in anything, you make it instantly cool. Yeah, so this is the um, X7. Okay. <laughs> and it, it adds quite a cool little amount of features. So they've got um, Game Genie cheat codes can be sent through there. You can do save states. But also, the most important thing that I think about this is it's four times less power-consuming than the original one. So... Batteries are really important on Game Boys and Game Boy Advances, so this isn't going to rinse it, you know, going through the menus and selecting other games. Again, I think that was always a problem, that the batteries would go really quickly, and I imagine now there is. There must be ways where you can, you know, buy like a, a new battery pack for them that's just kind of rechargeable or something. That must be out there. Come on, we've got to get Anna on. <laughs> <laughs> are we getting the nod? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've got Anna in the studio, and she's a bit of a resident Game Boy expert, so... Um, can you get these add-ons? Well, what my dad did when we were younger, he just bought, like, rechargeable batteries and just put it on because we get through them, like, in one or two days or something like that. Oh, yeah, good system, actually. <laughs> yeah, I never <laughs> thought of that, just rechargeable yeah, batteries. Yeah, it's just pretty straightforward because back then, batteries were very, very expensive. Me and my brother would just, like, end up swapping batteries with everything else in the house. Good system, so yeah. Taking them out your dad's remote. Yeah, so we wouldn't have to wait for them to charge. So it was just like our system. And then one day my dad would just grab the controller and it would be out of batteries and it would just be like, oh, yeah, it happens. So how many Game Boys have you got? I think the only like Nintendo handheld that I don't have right now, it's the, I think it was the SP with the first flip one that they had. Like I got the Game Boy Color that purple see-through one which was like the special one and was the one i had as a child so i got that for christmas for my brother a couple of years back and and even went as far as buying the original game boy for my mom for her to play tetris because she loves tetris and i oh, promised wicked. her i would get a tetris machine well we'll have to look into getting you a uh, everdrive x series uh. <laughs> no ravi's getting you for christmas now <laughs> <laughs> that's it. so yeah if you don't get hold of one of these i mean obviously it's crix who's making it the guy that's behind all the everdrives and he's a talented guy as well but you know i still want that jaguar one still need that jaguar ever oh god, god Come yeah on, that would be good get it sorted now following on from that no, another bit of nintendo news you're a mario kart fan ravi 
Oh, I'm a massive Mario Kart fan. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed that game. I quite enjoyed Diddy Kong Racing as well back in the days. But actually, we were at Skegness recently, and we were playing um, Mario Kart DX, which was like an arcade machine. Mm-hmm. We were sitting in a line, and you could kind of join. It was exactly like the uh, Wii U game. Well, I was playing, um, you know, pretty much Mario Kart 8 Deluxe non-stop for about a week recently on my recent trip to Italy. You know, every night when Samantha was getting ready, I was there playing it. Always love Mario Kart. But now there is something really interesting that's coming out. Mario Kart Virtual Reality. Oh, God, that looks cool. I've, I've seen the little trailer, and people are, like, throwing bombs. <laughs> it's like, fantastic. It looks nuts. And this is the thing about it is they're only going to be releasing this in a Tokyo arcade at the moment. Now, it's coming to uh, Namco's Tokyo arcade. So if you want to play it, that's the only place in the world that you can do it. Well, that's where these D... DX ones were from these massive arcade machines. They had these beautiful Namco wheels on it that were like, you know, force reactive. Yeah. Yeah. So I think they're really on the cutting edge of a Mario Kart arcade technology. That's Well, I imagine by looking at this, it's probably the same seats and steering wheels and everything as well because it's got all that. But also, you, you put an HTC Vive headset on. Oh, wow. And you're essentially playing. I mean, because I looked at this watching the trailer, my first thought was, oh my God, this is going to make me so motion sick. <laughs> yeah. But then I don't know because. It's like the textures on Mario Kart and stuff. You kind of know that you're in a fantasy land, but with the realistic games like Drive Club and stuff, it's trying to fake that realism. Like, Mario Kart is just like you're in a cloud world. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if you'd feel sick with that. Well, I think having the seats and the steering and everything on there would probably help. I imagine because... I think the thing for me is, you know, when you're moving through your eyes, but your body's not feeling it... That kind of disconnects what makes me feel a bit pukey. Yeah, what about if the car flips over? Imagine that on the VR. <laughs> and even those Sega 360 things. Yeah, that's it. In a Mario cage, Mario Kart cage. But yeah. I've never been to Japan, and the you know the, the arcade scene out there sounds so interesting. Oh, yeah, I'd, l- I'd love to go. And just, oh, God, the whole culture there, it just looks fantastic. There's these big electronic alleyways, aren't there, where they've got just tons of fakes and, like old machines and stuff. I'd love to get some a hold of some really weird like Japanese consoles. <laughs> well, we have met a couple of listeners from Japan, haven't we, in the past? And I know you check the stats regularly. There are some listeners out there, so... Yeah, we've got a Japanese crew. Yeah, so for, you know, it'd be interesting to uh, see what's kind of hot over in Japan. You know, if you send us any pictures or anything or any videos. Yeah, any pictures of markets or weird consoles <laughs> yeah. or anything, we'd love it. Absolutely. Now, before we get to this week's special guest, uh, Matt Phillips, behind that new Tanglewood game for the Sega Mega Drive, uh, this is quite an interesting story then. I know you're a big fan of Tomb Raider. Oh yeah, favorites. massive fan of Tomb Raider. And recently they did a, a full concert, uh, which was basically like in London with a symphony orchestra and they did all the Tomb Raider soundtrack and that was really successful. And now they're basically going to be doing Tomb Raider Suite, which is, you know, the music of the first three Tomb Raider games and they're going to be releasing them, done fully by an orchestra, but they'll also release musical score. I think there's vinyl releases in this as well. There seems to be T-shirts, CDs, you know. It's massive, and they've got 160,000 stretch goal, and they're up to 119 as we're recording the show. Well, the time the show comes out then, because we're doing this on Tuesday, and it's got four days, so this finishes on Friday, this Kickstarter. Yeah, so hopefully. (laughs) The day day the show comes out. So if you want to get involved in this, we'll put it in the show notes. But I think, again, I mean, we we have mentioned, um, in particular, Tomb Raider as being a game that, you know, the music for it, it was really atmospheric. And it is one of those soundtracks where, obviously, the game was very eye-catching, but it's also a game where, because I remember they actually released it, and you could just play the audio CD Mm. in a CD player on the Sega Saturn version at least. And it's great that it's got this much attention now. And also, this has been recorded by a proper orchestra at Abbey Road Studios. Yeah, the famous Abbey Road Studios. So it's like really going to be a high-quality production. And the fact that I can just get Tomb Raider music on vinyl, that's like so cool for me. I was thinking maybe I can make a, a, a video game vinyl collection. That's a thing that we could have never done, you know, five years ago. <laughs> While playing the game. Yeah. Then you just have to pause it to turn it over. Yeah, move that's the needle it. On, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've got a scratch or it's looping. <laughs> so uh, if you do want to back this, I mean, you know, like I said, time is running out on this one. If you're really, really quick, um, it's worth keeping an eye on. We'll put that in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. 
Right then, well, thank you for checking out episode number 76 of the Retro Hour podcast. We'll be out again next week, the first of a very, very interesting two-parter. Oh, yeah, I can't wait. Now, this is, uh, we won't give too much away, but we have got someone who not only worked for one of the biggest, if not the most famous video games company of all time, but also on a game that's been so big, it's had, you know, books written about it, it's had Mm. movies made about it. We're talking like, you know, something that kind of has entered mainstream culture, it's been that big. Yeah. We won't give any more away. No, no, that's that's all you're getting. (laughs) So let's go with up on next week's show. Do not miss that. We'll see you again next Friday. And now for the next half an hour or so, this week's special guest, let's get our Sega on. Matt Phillips. And we'll see you next Friday. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time to welcome this week's very special guest. Now, it's not very often we have someone on the show who's actually making new games for the Sega Mega Drive, but Matt Phillips, welcome to the Retro Hour podcast. Hello, how's it going? Yeah, very good, thank you. Now, uh, we're going to get into your um, you know, development on modern Sega games in just a minute because you know, I had the pleasure of playing your uh, Tanglewood game last year. I think I may have broken it temporarily as well, but <laughs> I think you've sorted it out now. Uh, but let's go all the way back to the beginning. What was your first ever experience with a computer or gaming then? Where did it all start for you? Uh, first experience with a computer? Um, that would have been my dad's Amstrad. Uh, he runs a a shed building business and he had this uh, little machine in the corner for accounts and uh, he hated me messing with it but mess with it I did and learned a few things um, first experience with gaming would have been when he bought me a Commodore 64 and um, I had Buggy Boy yeah um, absolutely loved the thing uh, must have completed that 20-30 times over um, I was quite young at the time so I didn't really know how to operate the machine very well um, it took many years to learn how to do it when I grew up, but um, yeah, I, I just about figured out how to put a tape in um, and load up a game. And Buggy Boy was always my favourite. So LOAD in return. Oh. Yeah. I, I love Buggy Boy. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good one with the um, tunnel sections in it, and yeah. when it would just get really thin on the track. But for the time, it was really <laughs> cool because I've not really seen video games other than uh, flashes of the arcade. When I walked past it, I was never allowed in, but. Uh, yeah, it, it looked real to me. <laughs> Look back at it and laugh now, but it was very real to me. So how did you first get into uh, coding then? Uh, that would have been the back of the manual for the, the same machine. Um, it came with a a basic programming tutorial in the back. Um, I remember me and my dad sitting down typing out 100 lines of code from this thing to try and get this uh, little um, air balloon, hot air balloon, moving across the screen. Um, somebody shared a, a photo of that on, on Twitter not so long ago. That brought back some memories. Um, turns out it was a lot of people's first coding experience, that hot air balloon. But yeah, I remember we were looking through each line one at a time to figure out where we made the mistake because it never ran first time. And it was way past my bedtime and uh, I forgot to save it on tape. So I saw that run once and uh, never again. You'd have been tempted to like get the PDF and like type it into an emulator. <laughs> yeah, I suppose I could do, yeah. <laughs> be cheating a bit I'm, I've still got the same machine I might dig that out of the attic and uh, give it another go so what was your kind of first console then because I know you had the C64 but uh, did you get a games console later on um, yeah I got the Sega Mega Drive when uh, I was about nine years old um, before that we had some little Amstrad Pong machines that my dad had but uh, I'm not sure if you could consider those consoles by those standards but um, yeah I came home from school one day and there was a Sega Mega Drive waiting for me there Sweet. my mum had uh, lent from a friend um, but it was there for two weeks and it was uh, snatched from my hands while I was kicking and screaming and <laughs> taken back to its original owner uh, so it wasn't until that Christmas that I actually got one of my own um, I think I had a, uh, a NES at some point um, but it paled in comparison to my Mega Drive so not, not something that has as many fond memories as my Mega Drive did well, coming from the Commodore 64, I mean, the Mega Drive must have seemed like quite a massive step. Yeah, yeah, it certainly was. Um, they looked very real to me, very good graphics. Um, adored Sonic the Hedgehog, it was the first game that was on it. I don't think that mach- that game left the machine for about three months after I had it, so uh, got thorough playtime on that. Um, but yeah, coming from the, the C64, um, I was always telling my mum I wanted to make games like Sonic, and then hammer back at my Commodore and start learning again and uh, 
became very apparent not so long after that I wouldn't be able to make games with graphics like that on the C64, but I tried. <laughs> did you get another home computer around that time then to program on? Yeah, I did have all sorts. Um, my dad managed to find um, a, a bankrupt business was selling old accountancy machines. Uh, I think it was an Amstrad 1512 I had with the big uh, five and a quarter inch floppies and very loud hard disk in it. Um, that had a couple of small games on it and it came with QBasic um, uh, for programming. So um, I learned a bit more basic on that. Various other things, some family members had lent down some machines to me, things like that. I had a 386 at one point with Windows 3.1. And then after that, I started buying my own machines. So, as a kid with this console, what kind of games blew your mind? You mentioned Sonic. Were there any others? The Flashback was a huge one. Oh, I love uh, that. The graphics on that look very real. Mm. Um, it wasn't long after that I'd got my first PlayStation. Um, and that had Abe's Odyssey. And mm. I, I always thought from the start that Abe's Odyssey was a very similar game to Flashback because it, only because it was static screen, 2D platformer. But at the time, I was telling my friends how the, the graphics were very much like Flashback. and um, I mean, if you look back now, they're really not. But as a kid, I was, I was very much uh, of that mind. So like, that was a big one for me. Like Flashback with farting? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And some strange brew. But Flashback was, I mean, it was really cinematic, wasn't it, that game? Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. Lots of uh, cutscenes in it and uh, quite a big story. Um, Another World. I'm not sure if that came before or after. Not entirely sure. Um, that was another big one for me. I think it was the same developer, was it? Yeah, I think it was Delphine released them both, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, and it was. Yeah, it was. But again, I mean, th- they were similar for me. You know, as a kid, it was kind of like even watching that introduction on Another World. Yeah. You know, the animation at the beginning. That was like, how did they fit that onto like a floppy disk or a cartridge? It's like glorious game. Yeah. Um, others big at the time for me were the Terminator. Um, actually, had a, a friend come and stay with me about ten, fifteen years later. Um, who spied this thing on my shelf and shoved it in the machine. I managed to complete it on grenades only, with only one life. No way. It was absolutely insane. <laughs> um, it was apparently the only game he had as a kid, he wasn't allowed anymore, so he mastered that one. Uh, what else did I have? Uh, the Menacer gun, uh, with uh, Toja Manil's Ready Aim Tomatoes shooting game on it. It was a big favourite. It was the first time I'd heard um, PCM voice playback in a game, actual voices playing from a computer game. It was a big deal for me. It's crazy to think, isn't it? You know those big steps that we saw back then. I mean, you meant, you know mentioned then, like you know, hearing real speech in a game for the first time, and you remember when you saw like full motion video in a game, and like those yeah. massive leaps in the early nineties. It was crazy. Uh, Sonic Three D's um, intro FMV. That was the first time I seen full motion video yeah. running from cartridge as well. It was quite a feat for the time. And the kind of parallaxes back then as well. They just keep getting more and more layers. Yeah. <laughs> it's just amazing. Um, was that the kind of point that you decided to get? into the world of video games or that you wanted to work in gaming? That was far earlier than that. It would have been when I uh, figured out there was a tutorial in the back of that Commodore manual. Um, my love of Buggy Boy, my love of programming for basic gelled together very early on. So um, I think when Sonic came along, it just propelled the the, the love for uh, programming games. So was it mainly basic that you were coding or did you pick up machine code like as well? No, it was basic for a very long time. Um, I didn't really know about machine code at the time. That wasn't in the manual. Um, well, I should have grabbed some books on this kind of stuff, but I didn't. So it was very long after I discovered other programming languages like C. I think one of my MS-DOS machines came with Turbo C and I dabbled in that for a bit. Um, and for a very long time, I struggled to move into the world of C and C++. I really tried hard. Um, and it wasn't until I had a, a work experience placement when I was at school with a company that made software for fruit machines, and they gave me a, a two-week crash course in it, and suddenly, with somebody at my side showing me a few things, I was an instant professional. So I think BASIC actually, you know, did kind of teach you a f- quite a lot of bad habits, didn't it? it yeah, it was, it was awful looking back. Yeah. <laughs> well, eventually you ended up doing a, a degree in computer and video games, like... I didn't know that even existed. That's so cool. Like, I want to do it now, and our listeners will probably be interested. Whereabouts was it? Uh, that was the uh, University of Salford. 
Um, it was also a very frustrating conversation with my dad because he didn't believe those kind of courses existed either. <laughs> so once he found out I wanted to do a degree in making video games, it was a, a long sit down with him to try and convince him. But Was he like, is it a real degree? <laughs> so, yeah, he, yeah. he said they were a fad and they weren't going to be around in a couple of years. Uh, well. <laughs> Not very often you get to prove your dad wrong, but I think that was probably one of the times he did. <laughs> Now, we're obviously, you know, it's great to have you in the studio, actually, Max. Normally we do the interviews on Skype and on the phone. You know, we do the show in Nottingham. And you've actually worked with quite a lot of um, local video game companies around here, like Crytek and uh, Dambuster Studios. How did your entry into the industry come about then after your degree? I started out, um, I was doing some uh, volunteer work for a small video games company uh, in Manchester. And uh, during that time, I was applying for all sorts of companies, and uh, TT phoned me up and said, um, yeah, you got the job, which was a big deal for me because TT made um, Sonic 3D, one of the first big games to capture my attention. It was Traveller's Tales, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they made a lot of early Mega Drive games. They did uh, Mickey Mania, uh, Pugsy, Sonic 3D, a um, load of others. Um, and they were, they were a big studio for me. They were, they were an absolute dream to be able to work for them. And I managed to do it, I couldn't believe it. And they gave me a, a junior programming job. Nice. Were you creating a lot of kind of modern titles then? Yeah, it was all Lego at the time. Uh-huh. And they, they'd got the Lego licenses for Harry Potter and uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, games like that. So I was working on audio systems there and visual effects and things. Nice. So you picked up a lot of skills there as well? Yeah, that taught me a lot. The Lego games are really cool. I was playing the, um, the Jurassic Park one recently. <laughs> on That's cool. I yeah, like that one. yeah, it's like just crazy how many like you know different like franchises you can chew on Lego into. It's, it's kind of like a British uh, gaming success, isn't it? The Lego yeah, and the games ab- absolutely huge at the moment. Well, did you enjoy working in modern games, then, or did you kind of hop back to retro? What kind of reignited your interest in? Retro? Uh, I, I kept moving forward as much as I could because uh, I wanted the career path to. Uh, keep going forward so I had to learn new technologies I had to stay up to date um, and I'd, I'd stopped doing any retro coding for a very long time probably since I was about 12 or 13 up to about 26, 27 so it was a huge gap between um, and it was while I was at Traveller's Tales um, they put the idea in my head that I should learn some sort of assembly language at the time it was to help out with some uh, complicated tasks um, crashes, things like that, required some assembly skills. And some of the Mega Drive coders there convinced me to try and do it on the Mega Drive. They said it was the best platform to learn on. Um, so obviously it was one of my dream things to be able to do, so I, I knuckled down and I, I learned how to do it. That's, that's crazy because it's quite hard to do <laughs> ASM. And I saw a tutorial that you actually did at the Nottingham Video Game Arcade and you made it seem really easy, so it's like you've kind of got a good understanding of it now. I guess it, it depends who's explaining it. When I was trying to learn at the time, there wasn't a lot of, of uh, material out there for learning this kind of thing, unless you went to old libraries and looked at some of the older books they had there and hope they still have them, uh, or pay extortionate prices on eBay for them. Mm. Uh, but even then, just reading a book doesn't really let it sink in. Um, it, it took a lot of practice, it took a lot of mistakes, it took a lot of asking people at TT for things like that. So, so kind of, what's the whole process in developing a new Mega Drive game then? Did, did you have to get the older bits of equipment and the older developers kind I, of I, software? I did eventually have to get some hardware. Um, I started out with a, just a, a text editor and a, an emulator. Um, but it wasn't very good for debugging, it wasn't very good for learning, it was great for emulators, great for playing games, for developing games, it's really tricky. Um, eventually, through contacts with friends of friends of friends, I managed to get my hands on um, some real Mega Drive development hardware. Um, it's a, a Mega CD development kit I actually managed to find, it's a 1994 model. Where do you find that? Lots of uh, separate places to get all the different bits. It, it came in 20 parts and had to hunt <laughs> all these down. Um, there's various websites you can go on for um, collector's items and memorabilia and stuff like that. And occasionally some actual development hardware will pop up. But you have to be really lucky. And I think I, I did get lucky. Did you kind of, you know, when you got this set up, was there any like old code on there or anything that came with it? Was it no, used for anything I wish. I've, I've got two of the same machine. One of them is my the, the, my day to day model that I, I use uh, for developing Tanglewood. 
Um, the other one I've got isn't properly working. Um, I, I can get it to power up and something comes on screen and then it switches off again. So I'm working with some electronics professionals at the moment to try and get that working. But that thing does have something still in the CP-ROM. So yeah. I'm, I'm trying very carefully to repair it without ripping the battery out so it doesn't lose whatever's on there. I'd be like a lost Sonic game or something. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be really cool. Uh, it's a UK-based machine, so I wouldn't hold your breath. Yeah, okay. uh, it's really interesting that you're kind of using the old stuff. Uh, have you found any new tricks or new techniques that you can apply to the older software kit to kind of, you know... Get new effects or yeah, the lots of stuff came from the the demo scene, which is still running. Um, there's uh, the recent um, Titan Overdrive demo came out recently. They they just discovered <laughs> they just discovered um, a, a secret mode in the first two versions of the Mega Drive that does transparency, and uh, that that was a, a debug uh, mode on the graphics process. That's something they've only just found out. That, that an insane find. 30 I, years later. I was watching the demo competitions this year and I saw the Titan demo um, for the Mega Drive and I'm usually into Amiga demos and stuff and I find them quite impressive but my socks were blown off. It was just insane. I never knew there was kind of effects that could be done like that. It was, it was quite a find for them. Um, they, they work real hard to find it as well. Um, I've got some of the, the members on Discord and they talk about how they, they went through it and it's, a, it's quite an experience. But yeah, um, I watched that um, same show where I stayed up really late <laughs> to try and catch their demo. It was really cool. So yeah, new things are still being found out about these machines. Uh, so we can do more things than they could have done back then. It's crazy to think, isn't it, all this time later, you're still finding hidden little tricks and stuff in... Proves like kind of how advanced these machines were for the time. Yeah, they, they were very advanced. Um, we've also got the luxury of time as well, which mm. I guess developers back then didn't have. Uh, we've got better documentation now better tools that we've written, etc. So did you kind of become immersed in the online um, Sega communities and seem to kind of pick a lot of this up then? I, I did a little bit. There's a couple of forums out there you can turn to for advice and stuff, but uh, it, it was quite slow at the time. It's only in recent years that it's picked up again. Um, so most of it was experimentation, um, trying things, break, try again, break, try again, oh, something's different, figure out what you changed and then write it all down. And that's why I started the blog. It was just a, it was more a log of my progress. It was a diary, if you will, to look back on so I can figure out what I changed and what happened. So why did you decide to make a new game for the Mega Drive then? Why was a new title needed? It was my favourite console. Um, I was learning a language to code on the machine. Might as well put two and two together. And I must say, it looks beautiful, like when I've seen the demos of it, you know, the pixel art behind it and everything. Are you behind that as well? No, it's a guy called Matthew Weeks. Um, he worked on Freedom Planet, which was that uh, Sonic-esque game. Um, they're working on the second one now, as far as I'm aware. It's just even the animation of, you know, the main character's a little fox. And the kind of movement and the jumping of the fox, it's really nice. Yeah, it was... Um, I, I wanted a fox-like creature right from the start, um, something wily. Uh, fast, nimble, uh, but also terrified. I wanted him to be not a hero, just scared of everything, and you have to get him out of sticky situations. Well, the game is called Tanglewood. Um, so where did the concept come from then, initially? Um, originally, um, I wanted to make something really simple because I'm not an artist, so um, I didn't have money at the time to uh, pay for artwork. So I was going to try and do something a bit like Limbo, which is a, a black silhouetted game that I could probably hand-draw myself, set in a dark forest, something atmospheric and scary. Um, and I, I had some artist friends at the time who helped me out uh, create my characters. And we decided that, you know, if a real artist is helping, we may as well up the art style to something a bit different. So we went back to the drawing board and uh, tried a different art style. And um, eventually we got this fox creature who was wily and nimble, exactly what I wanted. Uh, but also colourful and a little bit cute, so we ended up with a, a completely different game in the end, but I've kept some of the Limbo-esque scary parts from the original design. It's cool that you've kind of gone for like an animal mascot, because you think back to the kind of, you know, the, the early 90s platformers, they were all animals, weren't they? Yeah, they were. They all had attitude, though. It was a big thing at the time. They had to have attitude. Yeah. One, thing, one thing I haven't really brought across. <laughs> you've put fear instead of it. Put fear in, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's amazing, because I played the first level, and there was a lot of 
dynamic stuff and like physics that weren't in a lot of the original Mega Drive platformers. So it seems to me a bit more like Rayman, where you can kind of move objects. And I remember I ran up to one side of the level, a big rock chased me, scared Fox ran away, and then I could carry these little ball guys and put them into different pockets. And yeah, oh, different that was a areas. very early demo, that one, if the rock was in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, no, there weren't a lot of physics-based games back then. Um, there was Pugsy. Pugsy, you could pick up objects and move them around. It had some physics in it. Um, but I guess I've been working with physics a lot in some of the modern games I've been writing, so it's, it's just intuitive to me to put that stuff in. I don't think twice about it. Uh, back then, it was kind of new. It was something new TT were experimenting with at the time. Well, I noticed in your Kickstart goals as well that you have a lot of other systems that it's going to go on to. So, like, PC and Windows. And then you, you also had a stretch goal for... For the um, Dreamcast. For the Dreamcast. Yeah, we well. did. Um, well, I wanted the Dreamcast right from the get-go. Um, I had some uh, troubles getting my development hardware up and running, um, typically just before I press go on the uh, Kickstarter button to set it off. <laughs> I had to quickly retract, retract some of the stretch goals until I got it working again. Because uh, obviously that stuff's really rare. If it breaks, I've absolutely no idea if I'm ever going to get it working again or if I'm ever going to find any of the parts. So that was a really worrying couple of weeks while I was trying to get that thing working again to put it back. Are you a fan of the later systems then as well, kind of Saturn and Dreamcast? And um, Saturn, not so much. Um, I found one at the car boot sale when I was young. Uh, I brought it home, played it up. It, it wasn't as good as my PlayStation was my thought on it, and then it just went on a shelf for the rest of its life. Um, Dreamcast, yeah, very much so. Um, I'd saved saved for a long time to try and buy one of those. Um, I had one with um, Sonic Adventure, Sonic Adventure 2. Um, I also had the keyboard, mouse, modem as well, and the internet disc, but with no way to actually connect it up. So as far as I'm aware, that's still in its box unopened. <laughs> There's so many add-ons for the Dreamcast, though. I got that. What did I buy? The, the uh, fishing rod? The fishing rod, yeah. <laughs> Sega base fishing. It's like bongos. Yeah, all sorts of stuff for it. It was quite an innovative system, though, wasn't it? Yeah. I guess the Wii had all that as well. Wii had so many add-ons. I guess they're really cheap to make. They're just plastic, and you shove the Wiimote in, and it works. Well, did you get your hands on some uh, Dreamcast dev kits as well, then? Uh, yeah, I did, yeah. I managed to get a, a Katana kit, which was one of the later kits that they had. Um, I've also got various cables and discs for retail hardware, um, so that it works with that, too. So I can plug a, a cable into my real Dreamcast and into the back of my PC, and I can upload games with that well get back to Tanglewood then I mean how did it kind of go from the you know, one man project to you know to the level of being a Kickstarter um, well originally it was just going to be a hobby project I wasn't going to do the Kickstarter at all um, but it, it gained a lot of attention every time I posted something about it on social media it went pretty much viral um, I had loads of people commenting asking when it's going to be out etc and I, I hadn't thought of a release date I didn't even think I was going to finish the game ever. it was just something I was messing about with in my spare time but many people all together uh, convinced me to take this seriously. So I looked into various funding options and ways to do it alongside my work while I was at Crytek. But um, no, I, I had to do this properly. If I was going to do it, I needed to do it properly. So some friends of mine helped me uh, record a video and get some footage together and edit this page ready for the Kickstarter, and uh, off it went. Crazy to think you'd be selling essentially commercial Sega game like in 2017. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's tricky to do that. Have um, you ever had any word from Sega? I all. have. Yes, um, they contacted me about uh, not putting their logo on the box. Put it that way. No, no way. <laughs> uh, they also wish me luck with the project, so it's not a complete no. Oh, and what about uh, Tech Toy, the Brazilian ones? If you uh, try getting hold of them. Obviously, they're in a, a big uh, PR thing at the moment. They're about to release their new version of the Mega Drive, so. Um, I bet their inboxes are full and they haven't seen it. Yeah, It's cool that Sega are kind of quite open to fan projects, though, isn't it? Because, you know, if it was Nintendo, they shut them down. It is, yeah. You've got to be careful not to tread on their toes too much, though. Obviously, they are still a big corporation and they do have legal departments dealing with this stuff. But I think for the most part, they've been better than other massive franchises and shooting people down for this sort of thing. We've been talking about, you know, like obviously Sonic Mania is coming out, isn't it? And that's like, what do you think of kind of Sega going back to roots a bit? Mostly happy because they picked up a homebrew developer to work on that. Um, they noticed somebody's fan project was very Sonic-like um, on one of the Sega retro forums. Um, they snatched him up 
and uh, encourage him to carry on with it rather than sending him a cease and desist. And now it's going to be the next Sonic game that's quite a tale for him to tell. It is pretty mad. And I was just wondering how you kind of get the carts and how that kind of works the whole... Well, that's a story of it. So I've tried so <laughs> many places trying to figure out how to get these things manufactured. Um, there's some places that do some uh, cartridges for people making reproduction carts and stuff like that. So there are places that still exist uh, printing them. Um, but they've got Sega's logo on the box, so I can't really use those. So I've been looking at moulding processes and hiring factories and things like that. And uh, as of this morning, I've, I've settled on a factory to do it out in the States. And uh, they're going to print my logo on the box. And uh, there's a shipment coming soon. How many are you expecting to make, then? Uh, the first one's going to be 600, because yeah. that's how many are sold for the Kickstarter, uh, plus a couple of spares. Um, and I'm going to be opening pre-orders at the end of this year uh, to see how many people are interested in the, the properly priced retail version. Hopefully a lot more. I imagine as well in, the, in, in this market, kind of collectors do want to have their hands on a physical game. Yeah, they do. A lot of people buy two because they want, they want one sealed in box and they want to open another and play it. Uh, so there's quite a lot of people have, have emailed me and asked if they can have two. <laughs> um, yeah, so mostly collectors, I think, are interested in this thing um, because they've asked for the ROM file as well so they can play on their emulator or their overdrive or whatever. So I think they want the box on the shelf and they don't want to touch it, but they still want to play the game. So what would you say is your kind of favourite moment so far of the whole Tanglewood project? Uh, probably hitting that Kickstarter goal. Uh, we had a, a bit of a party in my house that day. Yeah, pop the um, champagne. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a, a very stressful month, that one. Um, there was a lot of up and down because somebody bought the top £5,000 uh, tier and then two weeks later cancelled it. So oh, no <laughs> saw the graph go up, 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 and then straight back down again. It's like, what is going on? <laughs> so, yeah, my, my heart was in my stomach that, that entire month, so I'm very happy that it finally went over the line and that I could get some sleep. I can imagine it's a lot of pressure, actually, running something like that, and uh, all the different aspects, as well as doing the coding. <laughs> yeah, there's so much to do. You've got to do press releases, you've got to do interviews with people, um, so much social media stuff. You've got to have every account on every kind of social media you can imagine um, I, and keep hammering at it. Well, I guess doing stuff like this today, I mean, it's kind of the equivalent of like doing like you know a magazine interview back in the early 90s, isn't it? You know, It's kind yeah. of getting yourself out there. Well, I got a taste of that as well. Um, Retro Gamer magazine gave me a two-page feature on it, so I've been in um, a physical publication, which is quite a big deal. <laughs> um, it's quite a big deal that there's still one going today, let alone getting my game featured in it. Did your mum buy up all the copies then? <laughs> <laughs> I, I know she's got one. Yeah. <laughs> it's cool when, when you can walk into like Asda and there's actually like a, an interview with you on the shelf there. Yeah. It's, yeah, it must be pretty crazy. So are there any like, obviously I know Tanglewood is kind of you know, still pending, but are there any plans for um, you know, future games, Tanglewood 2? Um, I thought about um, some sort of prequel, because it does have a light story in there. I won't reveal too much. Um, but it's something that might warrant a bit of explanation, so it might need a prequel to tell you what's going on, really. Um, I also thought about the concept of a lock-on cart, because obviously there was only one, and that was Sonic and Knuckles. And if I could find somebody to manufacture the plastic for that, um, I'd like to try and make a, a lock-on cart featuring the prequel. And if you put in the first game on top, you might get a third game or something like that. It, it would be quite a, an over-the-top, ambitious project, and I'd need a lot more time for it, but... Um, yeah, that's an idea I was floating out there. Um, I've also got an, uh, an idea for another game, um, which is a sort of... Um, it's a mech shooter, where the mech can change into a hovercraft at the top of the button, touch of a button, um, something like that. Um, it's not very fleshed out yet, but it's just an idea off the top of my head of what I might do next. You like to keep busy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this certainly won't be my last Mega Drive game. I'm enjoying it too much. Have you seen the other recent Mega Drive games coming out as well? There's that uh, beat-em-up one. Uh, Paprium. Yeah, yeah Paprium. I've, I've been keeping a close eye on that. It looks absolutely fantastic. It looks You've insane. seen the trailer. Yeah, and the music. just one wow. of the greatest trailers for any game I've ever seen. It yeah. was glorious. Yeah, and if you're already looking at techniques in there going, how did they do that? Or, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's that. a couple of things there. There's one screenshot they released, and a couple of us on our uh, Mega Drive Development Discord channel have been pondering over it, thinking how they get sprites to do that. And Breaking like that. it all so, down. <laughs> so, yeah, I think they might be doing something groundbreaking as well that hasn't been discovered, but uh, they're very tight-lipped about their development, sometimes for several years at the time. 
Mm. They're very tight-lipped, so it won't be any time soon we get hold of the details about what they're doing. W- would you also consider going onto any kind of compilations or anything like that? Imagine if there was a, a like a new Mega Drive games compilation that oh, came out cool. or something. Yeah. It'd be a, a homebrew compilation, I guess. Um, I don't know. Uh, if somebody wants to, then uh, perhaps. Yeah. What do you think it is about the the Mega Drive that you know still captures attention all this time later? Uh, the stupid adverts that got the uh, idea into kids' heads at the time with the terms like blast process and things like that. It was a very attitude-driven ad campaign, and people remember that fondly. Uh, I remember as a kid people shouting the Sega chant in the playground and things like Sega. that. So <laughs> I, I think it's mostly people that had this drilled into them from a very young age. You could call it brainwashing if you like, but. <laughs> Yeah. I remember, like, yeah, the the, the, uh, yeah, the Cyber Razor Cut and those kind of adverts on TV. They were, like, you know, and the Sega Pirate TV as well. Yeah, I'm not sure we get away with most of those these days. Oh, there's some, like, you know, it's like a Mega Drive one where it's uh, a guy holding a joystick. Have you seen that one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. won't get away with that anymore. No. Yeah, I remember <laughs> the word you went for it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll send you a screenshot, Ravi. Right. <laughs> but it is amazing to hear that, you know, there is still an active Mega Drive uh, games industry, you know, especially the fact that it's making commercial Kickstarter goals and stuff. That's pretty incredible. If people want to uh, get hold of the game, when, when is it available for general release? Uh, the Kickstarter batch ships in November, so um, however long it takes to have another batch of cartridges produced after that, so... Let's say early 2018. Um, I don't know how long this batch is going to take to get manufactured and delivered, though. So once I've got the first one done, I can give you an estimate date. November's cool. That means there are, there are people that will be finding a new Mega Drive game in their Christmas stocking this year. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, two new Mega Drives are coming out as well, so they'll have something to play on, too. Yeah, absolutely. Imagine you could walk into the shop and there could be like Mega Drive games lined up and new Mega Drives one day. It could happen. Yeah, I've asked a couple of uh, retro shops in town if they'll actually stock it on the shelf, uh, mostly so I can see it on a shelf. <laughs> That'd be amazing, yeah. How, how was their reaction to that then? Uh, they were well up for it, yeah. They, they really wanted that, so. Yeah, hopefully they'll reserve some shelf space for me. We'll keep an eye out. We'll have to get a picture. Yeah, go, go in and get a copy. I might go the whole hog and get some point of sale stuff produced. So <laughs> card will cut out the character outside. Like it's 1992 or whatever. Indeed. <laughs> well, Matt, it's been amazing talking to you and uh, reminiscing about Steger and uh, him what you're up to these days. If people want to find out more about Tanglewood, um, where can they find out information? Uh, tanglewoodgame.com. Excellent. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much.